Bibles and go to John chapter 8. <coughs> Excuse me. John chapter 8. Two words we want to teach on tonight. Pleasing God. Pleasing God. And, and in this teaching, we definitely want to deal with how to live a life that pleases God. Gospel of John chapter 8. Notice what it says in verse 29. And he that sent me is with me. The father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Now you can keep a finger there and let's go to Matthew chapter three. And in Matthew three, I want to read verse 16 and 17, the final two verses of Matthew three. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway or immediately out of the water and lo, the heavens were opened unto him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Father, for the next few moments as we break the bread of life, speak to all of our hearts. Teach us. Help us to maybe consider some things maybe we've never considered before in Jesus name. Amen, amen, amen. You know, there are several ways that a Christian can live his or her life. And the first is you can live your life selfishly. And you can make everything center around you. Everybody else's desires and preferences don't matter, just whatever it takes to keep you happy, that becomes the most important thing in your life. And of course, to live a life that is selfish implies that a person is going to be self-centered. And we certainly have a lot of people like that in the world. It's not a good way to live if you're a Christian, but it is a way that people can't help but live if they don't know God. So living a life that's selfish isn't good. Another way to live, you can live your life selflessly, meaning that you can put other people's preferences before your own. Be willing to sacrifice your own desires for other people's benefit and other people's good. And you can do that without even knowing God. There have been plenty of people, and you probably know people in these small communities who are very selfless. And they would give the shirt off their back to help anyone. But that's still not going far enough in a good walk with God. So a person can live selfishly. A person can live selflessly. But a better way to live is to live biblically. To live a life in accordance with what the scripture teaches and allow the word of God to speak clearly to your life. And then to found your thinking and your actions upon what the scriptures teach a lot of people don't do that. All of us should do that who claim to be Christian. What that means is that the word of God is inspired. The word of God is infallible. This book truly is inerrant. That means that there are no contradictions in what God is trying to communicate to his people to be found in this book at all. And if you allow what the scriptures teach to govern how you live your life, then you're living a life that's biblical. And in that way, your life becomes a shining example of what it means to be a Christian. 
Well, in Matthew chapter 3, we have the baptism of Jesus. He's in the water. There's a voice that comes from heaven. All of us need to understand how to please God, what it means to please God. So the first principle is there in verse 17. The father announces from the heavens, this is my beloved son. There's the relationship in whom I'm well pleased. So there's our description. Up to this point, Jesus being approximately 30 years of age, the Bible doesn't say he's ever healed anyone. He hasn't walked on water. The Bible doesn't say that he's multiplied any loaves of bread. He hasn't done any miracle signs and wonders. We know that when he was 12, he was in the temple. But other than that, there's not a whole lot of activity that we have uh, mentioned in the scripture. But nevertheless, having done nothing, God was pleased with him. So you need to understand that God is pleased with him, not because of what he does, but because of who he is. And it's the same with you. When you were born, your mom and dad were pleased with you because you came from them. You were a product of them. They brought you home. If they're your parent, your guardian, if they're the ones that have authority over you, the pleasure that they exhibit towards you has nothing to do with what you have said or what you did. You came into this world with someone that loved you. And that's exactly how Jesus came into this world. He was born of the spirit. Of course, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And then when he was born into this world, the angels were shouting and praising and worshiping him. He hadn't done anything but came into the world. So you as a Christian there, once you're born again and you come into the kingdom of God through your relationship with the Lord, he is pleased with me and with you, not because we've done anything. Now, he wants us to do good works, but God's pleased with you whether or not you ever had led somebody to Christ when you first got saved. So the pleasure that he has for us has to do with relationship. And you don't ever want to sacrifice that relationship that you have with him. Don't put it on a shelf. Don't put anything before it. Let God be who he wants to be in your life. A beloved son. In whom I'm well pleased. That tells you that God can be pleased, but God can also be displeased. There's a verse in uh, the book of Ephesians that says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So God has the capacity to be happy or to be unhappy with whatever it is that a person is doing. Now, coming back over here now to John chapter 8, you'll notice verse 29 one more time. And look at what it says here. I do always those things that please him. In the other parts of the chapter, Jesus is reiterating again and again that God is his father. So he's announcing that relationship. God is his father. And he wants them to understand, if you really knew my father, you'd know who I am. You have a relationship with me. Since Jesus had a good relationship with his father, then that means that he wanted to do the things that pleased him. Now, let's not forget, some of us in here may not necessarily have had a good relationship with our natural fathers. But even if you did not have a good relationship with your natural father, that is no reason for you to bring that baggage into your relationship with God. If you had a natural father who was abusive, God isn't abusive. If you had a natural father who had a substance abuse problem, 
God's never had a substance abuse problem. If you had a natural father that cussed at you, God has never used vulgarities when trying to get your attention and speak to you. So your relationship with God should be based upon the fact that he's the father, you're the son, you're divinely connected. And since you're connected, he's the authority in your life. He's the one in control. And Jesus, by making the statement in verse 29, I always do the things that please him, lets us know he's familiar with his father's desires. Most children are. Most children raised in a home know what their mother and father do like and don't like. And you, all you got to do is ask them. Because I know when years ago when Tiff would babysit and, uh, you know, the parents, of course, would kind of lay down the law. Uh, we don't like the kids to do this. We don't like them to eat this. And then, of course, I, I would come around and I just didn't really care what the parents said. And so and so, of course, you know, keeping keeping all the rules. And so I'd say to the kids, I'd say now, uh, uh, can, can, would your mom like you to have this? Well, probably not. Well, well, would your dad mind if you went here? Well, probably not. And then I say, well, how about how about this this uh, this soda pop or this sugar? Well, we they probably wouldn't want us to have this, but we could have it if you didn't tell them. <laughs> kids, kids. So the, the kids certainly knew the desires of the parents, and even though I'm make, making light of it, Tiffany and I never did anything contrary to what a mom and dad told us when it came to looking after anybody's little ones. But Jesus obviously understands what his father's desires are. The only way to learn them for us is by knowing the Bible. You have to learn the Bible. And if we learn the Bible, we can come in contact with the heart of God. And then I have some insight regarding what pleases him and what doesn't please him. And if I want to please God, I really do need to know what he does not want me to do and what he wants me to do. The average kid really does want to please their parents and keep them happy. And when you find cases where that's not uh, so, then there's usually a number of factors in there. But if Jesus uses the word always to describe what he does, then that tells you he prefers his father's wishes and designs above anybody else's. His father's. Nobody else's. The Pharisees <clears throat> preferred the traditions of the elders. Jesus preferred his father's will. The Sadducees were interested in the leaders of Rome. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spirit realm. Jesus believed in all three of them. He preferred his father's will and wishes. Now, if I was a kid and I told my parents one more time, I said, look, I'd like to go to such and such place. Would you mind if, if I went? And then they said no. And then I said, well, uh, you know, Eric down the street, his mom and dad are letting him go. So then, of course, you know what the answer would be. My parents would say, well, Eric is not our kid. You are. And we said you can't go and you're not going. Well, that pretty much settles, settles all of that. But usually I already know what the answer is before I even ask. 
Do you know most kids know which parent to go to when they need something? I know I did. Absolutely. If, if I ever wanted to, to go stay out late at a game or something like that, or I was going to be with the fellas and do something, I'd go directly to my dad. And I say, Dad, you know, we're, we're getting together. We're going to do such and such. I want to be out a little bit later. Oh, son, go ahead. Just you enjoy yourself. Have, have a wonderful time. Everything's fine. I didn't bother with going with my mom or calling her because then my mom would be asking questions like, well, how many of you are going? What are the names of the boys? Are you going to give me a phone call when you get there and then give me a phone call when you're getting ready to leave? Well, I didn't even want to waste my time with that. My dad didn't care about any of those things. So I went directly to him. But if there ever was a time in my life where I was asking when I was in school for some money, I didn't go anywhere near my dad. Because it, with, with dad, anything that he gave in a monetary sense came with a lecture. Well, what do you think? I've got a money tree out here in the backyard and I can just go pick a $5 bill or a $50 bill. I work hard for everything that I have. You just want me to just give it to you and let you go and do whatever you want to do. Oh, no, I avoided that. I went directly to mom. And I said, Mom, I'm, I'm going to be with, with so-and-so, and I don't have any cash on me right now. You think you could, you could help me out? Oh, baby, come on over here. Come on. She put that purse up there, open it wide, and then give me what I wanted. And then along with the money, give me a hug and a kiss. People know who to go to. So if you understand the desires of your father, then quite naturally when you go to him, you do have some understanding as to whether or not this is a desire he'll try to fulfill. Because the Bible says in first John that we have our petitions when we pray, when we pray in accordance with his will. So maybe we should spend more time getting to know our father to understand what he does want us to have and what he doesn't want us to have. And this is what Jesus did in verse 29. Notice the, the A clause or should say the, the B clause of verse 29, it says, The Father hath not left me alone. Jesus knew that he was never by himself. And he lived his life in sync with the will of God. And that's why he had peace in his life. Because he didn't try to sin. He didn't transgress. He did what God told him to do. Now, on the other hand, let's go to Romans chapter 8 and let me give you a couple of things to show you <clears throat> why some people do not please God. Romans chapter 8, look at verse number 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That's important. It doesn't say they that are in the flesh will not. It says they cannot. There's no ability to please God. The carnal mind cannot please God. Now, starting at the beginning of the chapter, you run into the words flesh over and over again. What is Paul referring to? He's referring to your nature before you became a Christian. Before we became believers in God, all of us had what is called an old man or an old nature. Paul refers to it as the flesh. Sometimes he speaks of it as the law of sin. 
Before you became a Christian, you had certain habits, manners, a way of living. And when you became a Christian by faith in God, that old man was placed up on that cross, crucified with Jesus. And so now that that old man is crucified, God wants us to continually put to death the things in our lifestyle that are contrary to God. Now, when it says put to death, it doesn't mean you have to go around and kill it. You have to believe that by faith you're dead to this world because Jesus was the one crucified on your behalf. There are no good works you can do. There's no willpower that you can exhibit that's going to overcome that old nature. Otherwise, people wouldn't need to be born again. But that old nature is up here on that cross, and the devil is constantly creating circumstances, temptations, tests, trials, tribulations that are going to cause that old nature to come to life. See? And this is why, as a Christian, you have to be very careful that you don't allow the devil to produce in you those kinds of outbursts that later on lead to you having to repent. Some people are emotional, but you can't live according to your emotions. And your life should not be dominated by your emotions. You say, Pastor, what what does an emotional life look like? It's like the individual who everybody around them has to walk on eggshells because they don't know when that person is going to just absolutely explode with a temper tantrum or get mad. People shouldn't have to walk around eggshells around you. You're just not that important. Put that old man to death. Why do everybody have to spend their time trying to appease you? That old man is selfish. See? That old man, that old nature is self-centered. That old nature says, look, I am the most important person in my world. And if you're going to come into my world, you're going to have to acknowledge me as the God of this world. That's a live. Oh, that's an old man come to life manifesting through a person. But if you're a Christian and that old man is dead, then we should prefer our brother or our sister. Yeah, you'll be on an emotional roller coaster If you live dominated by your feelings, Monday, you'll be happy. Monday night, you'll be unhappy. Tuesday morning, you'll be happy. Tuesday night, you'll be unhappy. There are some people that when their birthdays come around, everybody knows. Don't talk to them. Don't wish them a happy birthday. Don't bring it up because it's just a terrible day in their life. Why does it have to be that way? Why do you have to allow your personality from your old nature to control that new nature? And the scripture says, as a Christian, old things are passed away. All things have become new. Paul says in Colossians and Ephesians, putting off the old man, put on the new. So we're learning to live by new characteristics. We're learning to live by new qualities. And God doesn't want you dominated by your sense features. You've got to understand we walk by faith and not by sight. If you can only trust God because you can see God, you're never going to believe God. You have to understand that these things can deceive you. If you don't believe me, read the story of Isaac when he blessed his twin boys. I should say twin men. Because one of them came dressed like the other, had put hair and stuff all over him. And then Isaac, in extending the blessing to the one, said, you feel like Ishmael, see, or excuse me, you feel like Esau, but it's the voice of Jacob. 
but he was totally deceived by his senses. In the beginning, he knew, but in the end, he went by, he went by what he felt. Didn't go by what he hear, he heard. So as a Christian, don't allow yourself to be dominated that way. Coming back to verse 8. If you're in the flesh, you can't please God. It's impossible. Because in verse 7, that carnal mind is against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Sometimes we want to understand why it is that the culture of this world is contrary to Christianity. It's because they live and are governed by laws that are not subject to the law of God. A carnal mind that cannot be harnessed by the power of God because that heart is dominated by the adversary. Under the power, the rule, and the reign of the devil. And if I meet a person who tells me, well, I'm a Christian, but um, I don't like to be around Christians, and I don't like Christian music, and I don't like to read the Bible, and, and I don't like to uh, have to go anywhere where I've got to consistently be involved with a fellowship, and, and I'm not interested in doing anything of, of a Christian nature, then I know I'm dealing with someone who doesn't know God, does not know God at all. Because if you are born of God, and have the nature of God, then you're going to do what that nature inspires you to do. Even Jesus went to the synagogue, pulled out some scripture and read it. You say you're a Christian, which means to be like Christ. You don't even want to read the Bible and be around people that love God. The features of this are, are, are clear in that. Jesus is the express image of the Father, and if we have an image of what the Father, Father is like, it's because we have an image of Christ. If I want to know what your parents look like, I can look at you. And if I can't do that, if I want to know what the people who raised you are like, all I got to do is pay attention to you. Because you pick up people's habits. You do. You pick up people's habits. My, my stepdad, I've got a lot of his habits in my life because he raised me. I do. And, 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 of course, uh, my brothers didn't mind letting me know when they saw some of them habits coming out, too. And as many parents do, they look at the way sometimes kids are acting, and they'll just kind of look at one another and say, you know, he's acting like you. It's usually when uh, somebody's acting up or cutting up or something like that. You know, they get that from you. Yeah. Well, if, if you're in the flesh, it says you can't please the king. Now, let's go to Hebrews 11. Let me show you something else here. Hebrews 11, and notice what it says in verse 6. We've told you that those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Impossible. For him that he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So faith, we can define it as trust, reliance upon God confidence in what God has said. But the scripture tells us here, without it, you can't please them. Well, there are plenty of people that, in my estimation, seem like they glory in unbelief. I've even heard preachers get up and preach messages on how, you know, God, God understands and God is excited about your honesty and your unbelief. And I'm like, that's foolishness. Absolute foolishness. Everything in this book from the beginning to the end tells you that God wants you to trust to him. God wants you to believe in him. God never promotes unbelief, doubt, or distrust of him. 
You said, well, pastor, what about the times where the children of Israel did wrong? You're correct. For 40 years in the wilderness, they didn't believe as God wanted them to believe, but God still provided them manna. God still brought them quail, but God never promoted, endorsed, or approved of their unbelief. He did it by grace. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So when you hear people, they're talking about, well, look, I I just don't know if if I can agree with what the word says and and I can believe that. Then if you can't, then how are you going to pray in faith and have any kind of assurance that God is helping you? If in fact you're saying, I don't believe God. It's clear. If you come to God, you got to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder. Now, I have a theory. And my theory goes like this, and it has to do with why some people are so inconsistent with serving God and fellowshipping in church. You know, there are some people, they only go to church at Christmas time and Easter, or they'll come once a quarter, or they'll go to church, uh, you know, every six weeks or or something like that. And you, you, you check up on them. You say, well, hey, what's been going on? How you been doing? And they'll say, well, uh, you know, for, for nine weeks, pastor had family that came. And so then they came. They didn't want to leave at church time. So we weren't able to, to, to be there. And, of course, I'm wanting to say, well, you ought to tell them we're going to church. If you're going to be here, you just make sure you have lunch ready when we get back. And if and if they're not trustworthy, then you can say we're going to church and you can go to the park or wherever you want to go and come back once we get back. But most people aren't going to do that. They're just, they're just not, not going to do that. But here, here's my theory, though. The same people who will miss service after service and won't be involved with this or won't be involved with that, you can say to them, in the last 90 days, how many days of work have you missed? Well, well, well none. Well, how, how come? Well, I mean, I mean, that's my job. I've got to be there. I get paid. So what they're saying is, I've got a water bill. I have an electric bill, I've got a car note, and may have a mortgage, and, and I have to be able to pay all of those things because I can't say to the creditor, I decided to take a two or three month vacation and I'm not going to pay you. So I have to be at work to receive dividends so that I can turn around and pay my bills. Well, look at what verse 6 says again. He that comes to God must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You've got to believe when you come to God that you receive a benefit. I can tell you what my benefit is from coming to the house of God. My life is enriched by fellowship with you. And your life should be enriched by fellowship with other people. And if you can believe that God rewards you on the basis of that kind of fellowship, then you also understand that God can take care of you a whole lot better than your boss can. He will. And the scripture here says diligently seek him. What does it mean to diligently seek? Well, you got to be consistent. If, if someone called you and told you that you hadn't paid a bill at the bank <clears throat> and you know that you paid it. And 45 days ago, you remember seeing the receipt somewhere in the house. There's a pretty good chance you're going to tear the house apart looking for it. You're going to go into one room. And then you're going to start pulling open drawers in this corner. You're going to go place by place all around that room, looking under uh, furniture, looking for that one receipt. That's what all of us would do. Unless you're Randy, who probably has it filed away in a folder 
and just go right to it and, and, and pull it out. But the rest of us, we're going to diligently look all around trying to find it. Maybe it's on top of the piano. Last time I saw it, I thought it was on a shelf and it might have been on the floor in the corner. You'll find it. But if you're diligently pursuing God's will and chasing after God, not as though he's running from you, but doing everything you can to get in his face and in his presence to talk with him, then he knows and I guarantee he's going to respond. And this is what it says. I don't ever want you to believe that God thinks that unbelief is a virtue. It is not. You have to believe that when you lay your bills out there on that table, that God's big enough to supply your need. And the scripture says in Philippians, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory, according to his riches and glory, according to his riches and glory, not according to your salary, not according to your talents, according to his riches and glory. And when you come to God and you look at all of that and you say, Lord, here is what we're involved with. Here is what is owed. Father, I'm trusting you to supply my needs. He'll do it. He'll do it now. Things may not change overnight, but if you diligently pursue him and walk with him and trust him, you'll find that just like with the children of Israel, manna will fall every day. Every day. And you won't always understand where it's coming from. Yeah. So it's a powerful thing to know that you serve a God who does reward those that diligently seek him. Now, the last thing I'll give you is over in First Thessalonians chapter number four. And we're still talking about pleasing God. And I want you to see these verses. First Thessalonians four, verse one. Brethren, we beseech you. And exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. So obviously if Paul is telling them to follow our examples, then Paul knows what pleases God and he wants them to do what he is doing in order to please God. Verse 2. For all of you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. He provided them some instruction and some teaching. Regarding how to live. For this is the will of God. See, here we are. He knows God's mind and God's heart. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. So, so there you have some information now on how to please God and what the will of God is to avoid fornication. That means outside of marriage. That means if you are married, to step outside of the covenant of that marriage. It's not good. He said, stay away from that kind of thing. And let's not forget what uh, the scripture says in another place, that adultery isn't just someone climbing in bed with somebody. But he said, that thing starts up here. See? And murder isn't just taking a knife and plunging it into somebody's heart. John tells us that murder starts in here. See? It's a spiritual thing that later on can be manifested. It starts with a thought. And as we told you from Romans 8, the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can it be. So if you meditate on things that are sinful, those things that are sinful are never going to produce in you the kind of submission to the will of God that is necessary to please him. So we have to be the ones 
to govern our thoughts, to take control over thoughts that are trying to enter our head, because you've got to understand God's not going to do that for you or for me. We've got to do that. We have to do that. And verse 4 talks about everybody knowing how to possess his vessel in sanctification and in honor. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so you really should try to preserve your testimony and your relationship with God, how you conduct yourself. That's important. And to hold it in honor means to esteem it of great value. When uh, I'd go to people's homes as a kid, <clears throat> you know how your parents give the kids the, the lecture before they arrive at somebody's house? And the lecture kind of goes like this. Uh, we're going over to your grandma's or we're going uh, to visit so-and-so. Uh, when we get to that house, you're not going to be jumping up and down on their couch and you're not going to be reaching and grabbing for stuff on the shelf. You're going to keep your hands in your pockets. You're going to go in and sit down. And if you're going to talk to anybody, you're going to talk to one another. And if the kids are going to be in the other room playing, I don't expect to hear your voice and I don't expect you to start crying. So the talk kind of goes something like that. <clears throat> so then when you, when you get to the house, of course, and then everybody's having a good time and then all the kids are ripping and running and screaming and yelling and, and the floor is shaking and stuff is looking like it's falling off the shelf and, 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 and the host of the house is just ready to pull her hair out or his hair out and, and you're just looking because you know those are not your kids. Those are not your kids. Those are the other one's kids and they're not your kids. And so when when you finally do get to find out who are the culprits behind all of this, then you've got to explain to them why you didn't want them doing all of that, because those items are important and they're precious to the owners of the house. So Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you've got to understand how to possess your body because your body is precious to God. He redeemed it by the blood of his son. And you should consider your body precious. Yeah. This is why God wants us connected in a covenant of marriage. Young men, young ladies, this is why God does not want you to enter into a relationship where you're just living with a man that won't offer or extend a proposal to you. To treat your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit and not be somebody's mistress. But to be a Christian in the way you conduct yourself. And God wants young men to be the same way. To not enter into the kind of relationship that are going to have you living together outside of wedlock as though you're just, you know, somebody's physical companion. That there's more to what we do as Christians than just physical companionship. God wants us to be holy and sanctified. So the will of God in verse four is that we know how to possess his vessel. And the only way to learn that people have to talk about these things. Young boys won't learn how to be men if somebody doesn't talk to them about being men. And little girls won't be the women God wants them to be unless somebody teaches them and talks to them about what it is to hold on to that vessel and preserve them in our culture. Uh, being a virgin is a terrible thing, but in the kingdom of God, oh, I'm telling you, it's priceless. Absolutely priceless. It's wonderful. Growing up in school, it wasn't good for the folks to know that you were a guy and hadn't been with a gal 
But in the kingdom of God, oh, it was something to lift your hands and praise the king about and know that you have a relationship with God. We live in a totally different culture. See, totally different culture. And then the last thing we'll say here, verse five, not in the lust of concupiscence, which is unrestrained passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. Who is he referring to? The Greeks, the Romans and others. Other ethnicities, other nationalities, people who do not know God are dominated by the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the minds and the appetites that govern them. So we then as as Christians want to live our lives in accordance with the Bible and in sync with the mind of God because we want to do those things that please him. Not most of the time, not some of the time, but as Jesus said, Always, always. Yeah, I, I, I like back when uh, Tiffany and I, you know, we became good fellowship and friends. Ah, I love those days. I tell you, it's a long way of saying dating. You know, folks were dating, and so I, I always made time for her. See, this is how we have to be with God. If you don't make time for God, how are you gonna? Find out his mind, his heart, his will, his desires. And, and once once I knew I wanted to be with her, then, of course, I did everything I could to arrange my life around making sure I had some time with her. And when she was home from school, I wanted to be there. Yeah. And when she came home from work, when we were down there at Swaggart's, I wanted to be right down there at her and her mom's apartment. I just wanted to be camped out there. If she was over at the cafeteria, I'd head over to the cafeteria, even if all I did was just lean up against that doorpost just to stare at that pretty girl, pretty girl when she was in that cafeteria. And when she was somewhere else working, I wanted to, to be there, too. And then, <clears throat> of course, she was the same way. She wanted to be around me. So she, she, she'd come, and of course, she's a, she's a feisty little thing. She wanted to reach out and hold my hand and all that kind of stuff. I said, watch yourself now. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. And she, she'd come to where I was working if I wasn't traveling. And then when she'd leave, then I'd just start trying to make her a little uncomfortable because she had this long walk across this long street to get to where she was going. And I'd just stand there and stare at her as she walked away. Just as beautiful as can be. Just stare. Oh, girl, I said, I love watching you walk. And, and, and all of that. But see, here's the thing. I made time for her. She made time for me. Why don't people make time for God? If God really really is the love of your life, then seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things to be added unto you. You can't really say you love someone or something if you don't take any time to be with that person. That means sacrifice. That means sometimes you have to change your calendar, change your schedule. You may have to change your lifestyle just to make sure you have some extra time to be with someone. Because I don't want to spend all my life telling folks about the kingdom and then I myself become a castaway because I haven't had time to be with him. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's walk with God and trust him and love him and know him. Let's all stand. <clears throat> just a few thoughts on pleasing God. Now, if by chance this evening 
you hadn't been pleasing God as you should, make the adjustment. It's not difficult. Repent. What does that mean? Turn around. Go in, a, go in the opposite direction. But if you've already been doing this and things are going well, keep doing what you're doing. Because typically if you do what you were doing to fall in love, you'll keep on doing that. See, if there was a time way back yonder when Randy would massage Kathy's feet and she liked that, he better keep her going. He better keep her going. But you see him over here. He's nodding that head saying no. But 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 there are there are some people like Daryl who sits down on that couch and my wife just she loves that. I mean, I go to I go to rubbing on her feet. I mean, she sits there and just like a cat start purring. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, just goes to purring. <laughs> I do. I stalk her. <laughs> Absolutely. But God is good, folks. And all the time. God is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to get into the word. We can't think of a better way to punctuate a Sunday night. Just hearing the word, God, it encourages us. It inspires us. But Lord, when we're wrong, you do convict us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. Because you love us so much that you don't want to leave us in harm's way. But you also encourage us when we're going down the right road and doing the right thing. We thank you for that also. And we pray, Lord, that as we depart from this place, but never from your presence, you'll be with us all till we gather again on Tuesday night. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. amen.